I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Hello, and welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, a monthly program on WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville, brought to you by Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, the Louisville chapter of Veterans for Peace. My name is Stephen Gardner, and I'll be your host for today's show. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Today's show is titled Leaving Afghanistan. I've invited Marine Corps veteran Matthew Ho back to the radio hour, I think this is your third time on the show, to talk about what finally seems to be the end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, the politics of that ending and the consequences of war that is just barely shy of 20 years old. Matt did two tours of duty in Iraq in 2004-2005, and then again as a Marine Corps company commander in 2006-2007 after leaving the Corps. Uh, Matt went on to work for the State Department, where he was posted to Afghanistan, and whose public resignation uh, and subsequent outspoken opposition to America's war in Afghanistan and around the world sent shockwaves through the military and foreign policy establishment. Matt is a fellow member of Veterans for Peace and an emeritus senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. Hey, Matt, and welcome back to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Hey, Stephen, thanks for having me back. The main topic for today, uh, today's show is leaving Afghanistan, but first, just to remind our listeners about your perspective and how it has evolved, maybe you could tell us a little more about your background, starting with the personal path that led you to a commission in the Marine Corps. Yeah, thank you for, for th- this opportunity. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps after college. Uh, I was working in finance uh, and operations for publishing companies, and I was just bored. You know, I mean, this was, this was, I graduated college in 1995. And yeah, generally just, I mean, that, that's the way to explain it. I was bored. I wanted something bigger. I wanted to be part of like the big hand movements of history. I wanted to prove myself, you know, I, I wanted to be of service, all those different things. And I was bored, you know, the idea of filling out spreadsheets for old men and women on a corporate board was just not what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, yeah, so I ended up I end up in the Marine Corps, go to officer candidate school, and 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 I arrive at officer candidate school in January of 1998, and um, <clears throat> peacetime Marine Corps, so very much like the brochure. Uh, some of the, some Marines went to Kosovo and the Balkans, but you're talking about a few thousand. I mean, like, so really not a lot to do besides do what 
they promise you in a sense of, you know, it's work hard, play hard, uh, you know? And so I think the reality of what the military was like in terms of the impact it has on people around the world was relatively hidden because even though say I was in Okinawa for three years, you know, um, at the, at the at Camp Schwab, the smallest Marine Corps base in the world, uh, just really just a, a, a reinforced rifle regiment there. So about 5,000 people you're talking about total. The, the, the reality of what the U.S. military does was not in my face. You know, things happening in your life. And so now here I find myself in 1998 in the Marine Corps. And, you know, what sickened me about the Iraq War, the first Iraq War in 1991, wasn't in my face. And I think the point I'm trying to get to is that even though I knew about American history quite well, uh, you know, I knew about the Spanish-American War, I knew about the, the taking of Hawaii, you know, I mean, all the different colonial aspects, the imperial aspects of the United States, those were past events. You know, I, I failed to um, allow myself to uh, uh, understand history as a continuous line, right? That whatever I was doing in Okinawa was connected to all the past imperial colonial, you know, endeavors of the American empire, right? I mean, like, so, um, and then what happens then as the wars begin is that it's a continual struggle within me between those two things, really trying to keep that intellectual and moral honesty chained down and kept behind a closed door in my brain. And I think this is the crux, you know, and we could talk about this later about moral injury and as well as perpetration induced traumatic stress. You know, one of the reasons why it gets so bad for people that, you know, it becomes, I believe, and many other people believe, the leading cause of suicide and combat veterans, that guilt, shame, regret, right? Because you don't deal with it. You just try and hide it. You try and keep it locked behind a door. And eventually that doesn't work, right? Anyone knows you, you suppress your emotions, you know, just makes those emotions stronger, you know, and crazier and more convict, more convicted in owning you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think throughout the, the Iraq war, which I took part in twice, you know, I continued to make excuses for myself. And when those excuses failed, I found new ones. Um, you know, I mean, so I, I think I went over there uh, the first time to Iraq with the idea that as an individual, I can make a difference. You know, even though I, I, by that point I was, you know, it was 2004, I was convinced the Iraq war was built on lies, but there's still hope to turn this thing around. Right. And I, as an individual can make a difference a year later, when I come back completely don't believe in that any longer, you know, but now there's the opportunity. Now it, it's well, when I, if I stay with this, and I become a senior official in the U.S. government or, or, or whatever, I then can make a difference. So it's just about putting my time in so I can get to a place, right? And, you know, that, that is a pretty, pretty, pretty fragile excuse. And then I, at that point, I was a reservist in the Marine Corps at that point, a reserve officer. And so I, I voluntarily mobilized uh, to take command of a, a reserve company to go to Iraq because at that point, the excuse to myself was, well, look, I can help save lives. I know I'm a better officer than a lot of other guys, and I can do a much better job of bringing these Marines and sailors back home. You know, so I, I think even though the reality of the war is in front of you, what you're taking part in, what it is, the, um, you know, the, 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 the criminality, the immorality, the counterproductive nature of it, the futileness of it, all of that, you just 
keep your brain for, I think for, there's some really real psychological reasons here, you know, issues with, with um, you know, in terms of societal evolution and group think, you know, wanting us to be a part of the group, uh, you know, that, that, that allows you to keep rationalizing, making excuses. So, but I get to Afghanistan 2009, I'm a state department officer at that point. Yeah, what I see in Afghanistan is that Afghanistan is fundamentally no different than the Iraq war, uh, that uh, for all the differences you can come up with between Iraq and Afghanistan, none of those matter. That's the, you know, re really just looking at the forest, uh, you know, missing the forest for the trees, because the only thing that matters is the American occupation. The only thing that matters is the intention of the Americans. And very quickly, I went to Afghanistan in 2009, thinking that they we're going to attempt a political solution in Afghanistan. I was horribly naive about that. Um, you know, um, some of that was my own self-interest, wanting to be someone to help bring peace to Afghanistan, like that type of thing, you know. Um, but very quickly, it's apparent that, no, the Obama administration is no different than the Bush administration. They are escalating this war for nothing more than the glory of the president. For those listening, Stephen and I were just talking about Rome, the kind you can, how you can make some comparisons between Rome and, and, and the United States. And one of the things often, as I understand, uh, the justifications for some of the Roman expeditions, occupations were very basic, the glory of Rome and the empire. You know, I mean, and I think while you will not find an American uh, official or politician or even uh, a major media figure who will admit that out loud, I think that is certainly clear. Um, and so after being in Afghanistan for five months at that point, no longer able to lie to myself. I mean, I was intellectually and morally broken. I resigned in protest over the escalation of the war. And yeah, 12 years, uh, here we are. Thanks for that, Matt. That's, that, that's a lot. I mean, it, um, I, I can remember being a 17-year-old senior in high school in, in rural Oregon joining the army and becoming a, by, by UN definition, a child soldier at 17. Sure. Being put, yeah. being put in charge of, of being, you know, one of two launchers for nuclear missiles, you know, as a, as a 17 year old. <laughs> <laughs> it was not so much boredom exactly, more like I, I would call it meaning deficit, like the alternatives, even though, and this is 1982. So uh, in my mind, this is the peacetime military. You know, the fall of Saigon is seven years earlier. Now it seems like a blink of an eye. Back then it seemed like, oh, that's, that's like ancient history. Oh, seven years Absolutely, ago. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, surely we wouldn't ever do anything quite so stupid uh, uh, again. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think one of the things is that we as a people, I, I think we have trouble with giving away the agency of our, our current events, right? We, we, we want to we wanna kind of um, assume or, or, or understand what is happening currently as the result of, of our own actions when so much of it is tied to the past. So much of it is impossible to separate from the antecedents, right? I mean, so that you can, I mean, you can see it now. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. I mean, certainly our politics are that way, our media is that way. So that's why I think so many people in the United States right now looking at what happened in Afghanistan or saying this is because Joe Biden pulled 2,500 troops out of Afghanistan, a country the size of Texas. I mean, Afghanistan is 250,000 square miles. That means that's one soldier for every hundred square miles. I mean, does that make any sense whatsoever? But it's, you know, it allows agency in the moment and, you know, it divorces it from everything that has occurred in Afghanistan for the last 40 plus years. And, and, and I think that's why 
um, when people say, how do we keep doing this? How do we keep, why does, uh, uh, you know, the United States certainly hasn't learned its lesson? Well, some of it's because the United States never intends to learn a lesson. This is about expanding or maintaining its empire. But you see it does learn it in certain ways, you know, in terms of like shifting to how it fights its wars with special operations, CIA, proxy forces, drones, rather than having conventional troops there. But even that too, you, you see there's a lack of understanding that where we are now comes from the events before. And we, I think we are, yes, we have free will. We can determine things, but there are a lot of things that are already baked into us in terms of our decision-making, how limited our decision-making is because of previous events. And so, yeah, people today talk about Afghanistan as, yeah, it's because Joe Biden made that decision a few months ago to pull all the troops out that were here. And no way, man. I mean, that's like, that is the, 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 that's just the moment we're at right now. I mean, to understand it, you have to understand the previous 40 plus years and even longer, I guess. That's great. And that's exactly where I'd like to, to go with this, because, you know, as, as you say, there's a, there's a lot of criticism of the, the Biden administration right now, um, given that uh, uh, Joe Biden had a, a major history in the development of the war previous to the last few months, that is um, in that way, uh, certainly justified. And there's no way to say that what is going on right now is not a catastrophe. It's just a catastrophe that has been happening yeah. for, for 20 years, not started in the last couple of months. So as you're probably aware, the Washington Post is publishing this um, set of documents, interviews, and declassified uh, uh, documents uh, referred to as the Afghanistan Papers, an obvious callback to the Vietnam era Pentagon Papers that played a, a interesting journalistic uh, uh, intervention in the end, uh, or the, the souring of the United States on that war as, as a public. This, of course, is coming very late, even though some of, much of this is previously published. It's supposed to come out on August 31st from Simon & Schuster in book form. One of the interesting things that I see, there's this extensive, extensive criticism of how the war was fought, mm. and very little broader understanding. This reminds me a lot of so many of the postmortems from the mainstream on Vietnam, on the Viet war in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, the problem is we were not violent enough or we used the wrong kind of violence or yeah. we didn't fully commit or um, any of these kinds of interventions or you know, even we were not transparent enough with the American people or there were too many lies. I'm not in favor of lies, but if the lies and the truth both point to terrible decisions, then you know what? What is the what, what is the, uh, the the difference? Maybe we could have gotten out earlier if there was more truth. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just going to read a, a, an introductory quote from an excerpt from from these uh, papers and ask you to sort of comment on this longer term consequences and the start of the war. Um, so here's a quote. The interviews and documents in the Afghanistan papers, many of them previously unpublished, show how the administrations of Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump hid the truth for two decades. They were slowly losing a war that Americans once overwhelmingly supported. Instead, political and military leaders chose to bury their mistakes and let the war drift culminating in President Biden's decision this year to withdraw from Afghanistan with the Taliban more powerful than at any point since the 2001 invasion. Is that how you see this? Yes, in many ways. I'm not sure if I would agree with the uh, 
exact way it was phrased. Um, I think it does, it's not as forceful and as strong as it should be. Um, you know, there's no reason to say hid the truth. They lied. You mean like, you know, and that, that, that continues this uh, mendacity, right? When we don't explain and articulate things the way they should be. And, but it is, that's the case. And you saw that with uh, when Joe Biden made his remarks on Afghanistan following the Taliban uh, taking of Kabul. Uh, he opens with two lies. He opens, you know, lying directly to the American public. One, he says he opposed the surge in Afghanistan, which is completely not true. Uh, Barack Obama comes into office. There's 30,000 U.S. troops there and an equivalent number of NATO troops and contractors. Within 18 months, there are 100,000 American troops, 40,000 NATO troops, and uh, more than 100,000 contractors, so a 250,000-man army. Joe Biden's strategy, his counter-terror strategy, his, the opposition to the surge, as he said, how he was opposed to it, that strategy, if that had been selected by the president, would have meant rather than there being a 250,000-man U.S.-NATO contractor army in Afghanistan, there would have been a 240,000-man U.S.-NATO contractor uh, uh, army in Afghanistan. And I mean, you might say, hey, you're, you're kind of nitpicking here, Matt, but that it's that type of lying. It's that type of obscure, uh, you know, obfuscation of what was actually said and done and the ease at which Joe Biden says it. You know, Joe Biden knows what he did. He knew what he was supporting, but he and his people decided that after the Taliban just took Kabul, we are going to say this because it's more important for the image. It's more important for the narrative. You know, the other lie is he's repeated this. He has said this before. He said this back in July about how there was U.S. mission in Afghanistan was not nation building, which when he said it in July, he was roundly criticized for it. And so this month, when he says it again in front of the entire American public, his he and his people chose to do that, knowing it, specifically that it was a lie and knowing that they had gotten away with it before and not caring. I mean, Every one of us who was over there knows we were engaged in nation building. I was on a provincial reconstruction team. I mean, come on, like, the, and, and the provincial reconstruction teams or PRTs, they were the focus of effort for the U.S. military and for NATO over in Afghanistan. That was how we were going to win the war. So the, the idea that uh, uh, there's, they, they lie so easily. And just not on the details, not on the, 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 the data, not on the facts, but on the messaging, on the narrative. I think that's more insidious and more sinister because that rolls the narrative forward that the United States is over there to protect America from Al-Qaeda, that the United States is over there to, to take care of the Afghan women, that the United States is over there because if we're not there, China will come in. Whatever the, the prevailing narrative is for the purposes of the United States and Afghanistan, as explained by the American media politician and absorbed by the public, you know, that messaging is incredibly important. And that's what sustains and keeps these wars going. That's great. Uh, a great point and a horrible truth to to have to come face to face with that it's not just a series of lies about how the war is going, for example, or the likelihood that there will ever be anything that anyone would think of as, as victory, but that the, the entire effort was in, in the real sense built broken from that sense. It was built to do some other purpose. And one of the difficulties and, and why perhaps we see all of these narratives, it's also, it's partly because, okay, we need good reasons if we're going to, to spend so much money and risk so many lives and cause so much damage. But it's also, the real reasons don't make much sense, at least at the yeah. emotional level, uh, to, to most people. And 
this is this is hard to accept that we're going to to have this gargantuan effort for so reasons that are so bad. I mean, if you go back to the very beginning of the war and the idea, oh, the United States has been attacked on 9-11, and this is where um, the perpetrators or the masterminds of the perpetration are are living, and we're going to to get them. How, how long did, did that purpose even um, e- even last, even in public, public accounts? I mean, okay, we, we, we're going to get Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda how how long before the transfer to all of these sort of uh, grand purpose uh, ideas that never seemed very realistic, at least to me? Right. I mean, I remember in the um, uh, you know lead up to the Iraq War, the beginning of throughout the Iraq War, you know, people were taking note that George Bush never mentioned Osama bin Laden. You know, at, at some point, at some point in two thousand two, I believe George Bush stopped saying that name because that conflicts. Then, if he brings up that name, well. What that, what's that got to do with Iraq? You know, even though they were lying about the connections and everything, you know, well, how come we're not focused? I mean, all that kind of stuff is even in Afghanistan. Well, hey, why did they attack us again? You know, I mean, like all that kind of stuff, you know, better to keep that. That's a troublesome, you know, let's just keep it on these rather um, broad slogans of, you know, that, that harken back to you know, American exceptionalism, you know, and go back further, manifest de- destiny, go back further, doctrine of discovery, right? I mean, like, oh, we've got a purpose here as this empire, even though the Americans, we never use the phrase empire, because that seems to be a dirty word. Although, what do you describe a country that has, you know, between 800 and 1000 foreign military bases, when the rest of the world combined has like, 25 or something and most of them are with our allies uh i mean so it it is it's the 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 danger the the message has to be clear the narrative has to be sustained there can't be any counter to those things or there can't be any any, anything that's going to bring disagreement or confusion or so uh uh, so any type of of intellectual discord or moral discord uh so you do you have to the primary thing is to keep this narrative moving forward that as the Navy says, the Navy, their, their, their motto, their recruiting not motto, I don't know if they still use it anymore, but they did for a while, uh, America is a force for good, right? And certainly how many of the 535 members of Congress, how many would say, no, America is not a force for good, right? That is a, that is a, a, a trope that manifests and drives everything the United States does, even though it is wildly incorrect. And then if you go back, you do see things like, and you are, we are starting to see again, okay, so the strategy in Afghanistan, again, the strategy, assuming that there was one, um, the strategy is we're going to put ourselves forward in Afghanistan and to a certain extent even in Iraq as a way to deter the use of those territories for the formation for for the formation of sort of lawless areas or failed states to uh, to form terrorist organizations and to make our soldiers a frontline target for our opposition so it won't come here. I mean, uh, this I've heard this argument, I've seen this argument, and yeah. you know, in foreign policy journals, they're, they're like, yeah. Um, does, does this make any sense? It makes absolutely no sense. It makes literally no sense when you understand what the threat was um, and uh, how counterproductive our efforts, the United States efforts have been. I mean, I, I, first, I think we have to go and understand that Al-Qaeda doesn't 
pop into existence on September 11th. They, you know, I mean, they had declared war on the United States for uh, many years, five or six years before that. Uh, you know, Bin Laden had been on 60 Minutes in 1996 or 1997 saying he was declaring war on the U.S. This notion that somehow we weren't, the United States was not aware of, of Al-Qaeda is just so, uh, is so absurd. And then, of course, the backstory of Al-Qaeda, how Al-Qaeda, you know, uh, uh, grew out of U.S. efforts uh, it was a direct result of U.S. efforts in Afghanistan. I mean, all those kinds of things, the whole blowback aspect. But then the reasons stated for al-Qaeda's attacks, and this is not a, a, a I'm not repeating these as any form of uh, a validation of them, but this is just the reality and whether or not you agree with them or not. These are true things that you can point to and say, yes, this does occur. So when al-Qaeda attacks the United States on September 11th, um, and previous to this, they have been saying the same thing as well for years, um, the three reasons. Reasons, the three grievances of, of Al-Qaeda, why we are bringing the war to the United States is how they view it. The war has been going on for a very long time now, and now we are finally bringing it to your shores kind of thing, is, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, sanctions and bombing of Iraq throughout the 1990s, which killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. I don't think most Americans knew at the time or, or remember now that besides the sanctions that killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, um, the United States was bombing um, Iraq at times daily. Uh, I, I think throughout the 90s, it averages uh, to the United States bombing Iraq every two or three days. Uh, I mean, that's how prevalent it was. That's how often it was happening. Then, you know, the second grievance was uh, United States support for Palestine for, I mean, so United States support for Israel, uh, you know, an Israeli occupation of Palestine. And then third is, is the presence of U.S. forces in, um, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, uh, uh, occupying and garrisoning, uh, you know, the Holy Land. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, whether or not you agree with those, if you deny the validity of the validity of those grievances, you're just either lying or you're, you're very ignorant. I mean, <clears throat> the idea that further, but when the attacks happen, and, and I do understand why George Bush had to do something, um, and I do understand how the political realities of the United States and how waiting a month to start the bombing, which I think had more to do with the U.S. getting its military in position than anything else. Um, but waiting a month was already he was feeling tremendous political pressure to do something. I understand that. Um, and uh, however, the decision then, though. Uh, even especially after the Taliban, once the bombing started, the Taliban said, hey, we will give bin Laden up, stop the bombing, and we will work something out. Um, and the United States said, no, it's, this is about victory now. Um, no surrender, no any, anything. This is victory. You know, the decision to invade and occupy a nation because of the actions of a terror group that had at most 400 people on 9-11. That's how big Al-Qaeda was on 9-11. At most 400 people. And that's just Matt, that's not Matt Ho saying this. This is what the American FBI uh, says about this. So that idea to do that, right? And then if understanding the nature of the 9-11 attacks, uh, where Afghanistan was nothing more really than a hotel that Osama bin Laden and some of Al-Qaeda were holding up in. The reality is about those attacks is, yes, some, yes, most of the attackers, the hijackers did go to Afghanistan. They did some things there in terms of training. Primarily, my understanding is it was to go and kiss the ring of bin Laden, kind of, you know, get blessed off on this. And But most of the, the training, you're talking about 95% of the training, the preparation, the planning for the 9-11 attacks occurs in Pakistan, Germany, and the United States. 
you know, as well as the, the hijackers meet in Malaysia, they meet in Spain. Uh, there's evidence they met in uh, the UAE uh, and Qatar. I mean, so the idea that somehow Afghanistan was central to this uh, is just a complete fallacy. And then the counterproductive nature of this, um, the fact that Al Qaeda goes from being an organization of 400 people that used it's in that's 400 at the most. I mean, the, the range is between 200 and 400. So on September 11th, Al Qaeda used five to 10% of its manpower, the best manpower they had, the guys that they could trust uh, to wage these attacks. They go from that organization to within years, an organization that has expanded across the globe, that has affiliates, branches, that ends up having offshoots like the Islamic State, um, and that attracts tens of thousands of members, and uh, you know that at times controls entire cities and regions of countries. They still control Idlib province in Syria. That is run by Al-Qaeda right now. Just They call themselves a different name, but it is run by Al-Qaeda. I mean, so the idea that somehow the United States uh, invasion occupation of Afghanistan has had an effect on Al-Qaeda other than benefiting it is just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's out of touch with reality, out of touch with the evidence. You know, the other, the other data point you can look at for this as well is that in 2001, the U.S. State Department is saying that um, there are four international terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan, four. This past year, you know, in 2020, uh, the U.S. government says there are 20 international terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the results of the American policy towards both Afghanistan and Pakistan is to grow these terror groups by a factor of five. How anyone could say this has been successful, uh, you know, it, 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 it really just goes back to the narrative of America's a force for good. This is a Manichaean struggle between good and evil, you know, that kind of stuff. This, literally the same exact phraseology uh, and narrative that Al-Qaeda itself uses, right? I mean, basically on two ends of a spectrum here in many ways. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't uh, agree more with that. And in terms of, of representing this, there's that Manichaean aspect of what the narrative is, what we're going to say about this, especially to the general public. And then there's the sort of impression management um, that we started talking about at the beginning. As early, again, from the Afghanistan papers, uh, Ron Neumann, who was the uh, um, ambassador to Afghanistan at the time in 2000, early years in 2005, 2006, he comes and he quickly assesses the situation, sends a classified diplomatic cable to the, to, to, to the uh, State Department, says, things are not really going as well as we're saying they're going. Maybe we should be a little more honest about this. And this is the quote. I'm afraid that if we don't, okay, expectations of the public won't be managed. Quote, I thought it was important to try to prepare the American public for that so that they wouldn't be surprised and see everything as a reverse. So already after the initial collapse of the Taliban in, in the in the face of a, a sort of a full-on invasion, targeting the, the centers of um, uh, political power, Taliban retreats, uh, Americans put uh, public puppet governments in, in position, and now what do we have? We have a classic insurgency that, uh, you know, the quote from the Taliban is, you have all the clocks, we have all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, you have high-level uh, people in Afghanistan saying, um, saying, 
this isn't going so well. And what is the message then to the public though? There's no such such message to the public about what is happening. It's all of this Manichaean where we got to stay because of the girls and, and. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that spreads, and that spreads that, that, um, you know, good news stories only um, spreads and it becomes a real thing in terms of reporting, even at the lower levels. So, I mean, I'll give you a story, I'll give you a story. When I was in Afghanistan, um, they, uh, US, the United States spent tens of millions of dollars to build these radio towers throughout Southern Afghanistan. The idea being that we are going to use the radio towers to communicate with the people of Southern Afghanistan and Eastern Afghanistan. And, you know, you know, do, do and that's part of counterinsurgency strategy, right? We're going to connect the people to their government when their hearts and minds. And we're, you know, one of the things is you need to communicate. They install these radio towers. The radio towers have no fuel to be run on. There is no uh, programming to put on the radio towers. There is no ability to record programming to put on the radio towers. And probably most important, 99% of Afghans in Southern East Afghanistan have no access to a radio. I mean, so, you know, and so I write this up, right? Write this up, goes to the embassy. I see the finished product, right? I list all those things, you know, hey, we successfully built these things. However, you know, they're just giant pieces of metal sticking out of the ground at this point. However, uh, that the Taliban are either going to blow up or they're going to hang their flags and banners off of. The, what, the result, the, what, what goes back to Washington, D.C. from my report, the radio towers are installed and everything is great. That's it. All the other things left out. You know, I mean, like that is that is the consequence of basically where you go when uh, uh, you have this good news stories only approach where sycophants are the people who are put in charge and who rise. Look, remember, let's go. I, I think it's impossible to to uh, disentangle the Iraq and Afghan wars. I think we, we talk about one. We're talking about the other. So let's go back to General Petraeus who is so important for all of these wars, who not, not just his failures, but also to what he constructs in terms of uh, the narrative that Americans believe and uh, the, the way the United States uh, fills itself out in terms of conducting these wars. So Petraeus, remember, Petraeus takes, has a, a division up in Mosul in Iraq. He's either had the 82nd or 101st. I, I can't remember which. 101st. 101st. And, 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 and the story coming out of Mosul, according to the official numbers coming out of Mosul and all the data they're reporting, is that Mosul is under control. Mosul is not very violent. Things are going pretty well in Mosul. The next unit that comes in and takes over from him just walks into it. Walk, you know, it blows up right in their face. And the reality is, is that Petraeus and his people were lying about what was happening in Mosul. They were massaging the numbers up there. I mean, massaging, and I, I, that's the wrong term to use. They were fixing the numbers. They were, you know, and what has happened, though, is Petraeus then goes on to take over the training command for Iraq, what we call Minstiki, mostly national support and training corps of Iraq or something like that, whatever it stood for. And that is that he is in charge of training the Iraqi uh, police and the Iraqi army. Two major things happen when he's in charge of that. One, he loses, I think, 300,000 rifles and pistols just go missing, gone. 2,000, uh, you know, you're talking about 2005 rifles, 300,000 rifles, pistols just missing, gone. The second thing is, he is in charge of the Iraqi forces that become dominated by the various Shia 
uh, militias and the Iraqi police forces in particular then turn into the death squads that, uh, you know, the civil war in Iraq was already going, but they're the ones who really turned this thing into a genocide, you know, and this, you're talking, you know, the, the worst of what happens in Iraq occurs because of these units that Petraeus helps create. Well, all that, I mean, actually, he was in charge of Mystique in 2004, I'm sorry, because in November of 2000, it, so in November 2004, you have the presidential elections. And in October 2004, Petraeus writes an op-ed in either the Times or the Post. I can't remember. What's the difference, right? Um, the Times or the Post. And Petraeus, basically, he stops short. He does not, I believe, say George Bush's name, but you cannot read that op-ed as anything other than an endorsement for President Bush as president from a general in Iraq, a general who's already well known. He's already been on the cover of Time magazine. I think Newsweek had him on the cover. Is this the man who can save Iraq? Right. I mean, this is so what happens, I think, in, a, in a, 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 the idea of what the U.S. civil military relationship is, the idea of the way the United States military says it conducts itself, the meritocracy that the United States military is supposed to be, the accountability, the deference for civilian authority, the nonpartisan nature of the U.S. military in normal circumstances because of Petraeus's failures and then this endorsement of Bush for president, he should have been kicked out of the army, right, reduced in rank to a second lieutenant or wherever he started with, and that should have been it. Rather, he gets put in charge of the Iraq war. I mean, so you have this, uh, uh, you, you mean, if you understand that, then you can understand how uh, these lies uh, just, it was to your best interest to lie, whether institutional interest or personal interest to lie, to go along with these things, because that was the way you were going to be successful, again, either as an individual or as an institution. I mean, so it, it, it's, it wasn't as if just a few people lied uh, or a few people misstated the truth or fudged numbers or whatever. This was the system, the entire system. And it's interesting you brought up Ambassador Newman, because for many years now, Ambassador Newman has been one of the most hawkish people on Afghanistan, saying that we can't leave. It is going well. This is a huge mistake to be abandoning the people of Afghanistan. The, the Al-Qaeda is going to come right back, on and on and on, right? I think he just recently wrote how things were going well in Afghanistan, and Joe Biden blew it. Right. I mean, so how does someone like that transition from like the quote you provided, Stephen, from early on? You know, he becomes ambassador. He is ambassador to Afghanistan. Actually, a good friend of mine was his uh, assistant, uh, his his aide. Uh, his uh, I forget what the State Department term for for aide is, but you know, he was you know she was uh, she was that person there. And so I know Newman, and I really liked him in 05, 06 when I got to know him and everything. But at some point, he goes all in. Right. He goes in with this, this, okay, if I want to advance, if I want to stay relevant, if I want to continue to be a part of this war, then I have to go along with the narrative. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that aspect of it, how does this even occur? How do we have a, and, and it's not, again, I mean, this is a, 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 there is a chain to this. There's a line to this that runs, of course, right through Vietnam. Okay. I mean, through, through, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, you know, you can go back to, uh, uh, what was occurring, you know, with Smedley Butler and what, what the wars he was in, you know, whether they be in China and in, in, in the Caribbean in this in Central America, et cetera, you know, and the lies that sustained all those, 
Uh, I mean, so this is certainly not anything new, uh, but I, I think having an understanding appreciation for how some personalities uh, benefited. And then just like, you know, you get those little fish that swim next to the mouth of the shark, same thing, same type of phenomenon. That's, that's a great point because it sort of brings up a, a, a couple of things. First is, uh, is sort of the inscrutability of, of why fight these wars. And there are people who benefit is what this comes to. And there's kinds of ends up, uh, from my point of view, as being a kind of collusion between those who benefit in terms of personal career and those who benefit in terms at a larger scale, um, who happen to be deeply invested in companies that make munitions or that provide mercenaries or yeah. things as mundane as you know selling uh, laundry services or, or or whatever it is to the to the uh, overseas military. Um, so so you get these kinds of collusions, and then on top of that, of course, you have a lot of politicians for whom it sounds uh, a lot better to say we're going to be tough. Yeah, and we're going to take the tough road. We're going to be courageous. We're going to go after the bad guys. Then to say, wait a second, 9/11 that was a criminal act. Maybe we should like try to indict and extradite these guys. Yeah, <laughs> and the point being that the, all the successes we had against Al Qaeda were done exactly that, you know, rounding up college Sheikh Mohammed. That was an FBI operation along CIA was involved, but it was primarily, I understand as I remember it, an FBI operation with the Pakistani authorities to get the guy. Yeah. Those were the success stories. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I really appreciate your, uh, um, linking the uh the two wars because in a lot of minds uh may maybe less so now but for most of our time in afghanistan afghanistan was seen as a much um uh nobler and uh more effective kind of effort than uh iraq many people who were heavy critics of iraq were still on pragmatic grounds were still um uh in favor of the war in afghanistan and then you know the, the personal link through uh through petraeus and his sort of coterie of, of uh, so-called counterinsurgency um, gurus who uh, have this idea that, um, uh, well, a couple of ideas. One, you, you can um, uh, fight a war against sort of the culture of a, uh, of a country and reshape it somehow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and two, um, with that seems to be a necessary contempt for the principle of democratic transparency because none of these guys seem able to tell the truth about what's happening because they see it part of that counterinsurgency effort as the hearts and minds of the American people. If we can't keep yes. the public on, on the side of the war, the war won't be prosecutable. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I think that's how you get to this evolution uh, in the American way of war for, you know, the U.S. wars in the Muslim world where keeping these wars hidden is the priority. In order to keep these wars going, they must remain hidden. And so you, 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 you see the switch uh, in the last decade, uh, how the U.S. fights these wars from having large amounts of conventional troops uh, on the ground, taking casualties, to using CIA uh, J, uh, special operations, uh, contractors, drones, 
uh, and proxy forces to keep the costs of war hidden. I mean, even even these last several years in Afghanistan, when the United States had as many as twelve thousand or fourteen thousand troops, and it, th- those, you know, they they were they were not doing very much. They were in the sense of like going out and fighting the Taliban. They were staying on bases, training, uh, uh, supplying, doing maintenance, uh, helping the Afghan forces. They were in a support role because the American military and the American politicians uh, support uh, understand that. The, the easiest way to keep these wars going is to keep them off, uh, keep them out of sight, out of mind. Um, and yeah, that the way to do that is to keep them hidden. And um, they also, I think um, uh, you can, you can wage a much bloodier war in terms of killing people uh, using these proxy forces than you can using American forces. Americans, I think do have a distaste when it is put in front of them, what their people do. Um, what we do over there. I think there there is a degree of that. But when brown people are just killing brown people, well, that's the way that, you know, I mean, then you get into the whole trope of they've always been killing each other over there, all that nonsense, right? So that's how you can have, I think, say, uh, how the United States handled uh, after the Islamic State took over uh, most of the Sunni cities in the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys of, of Iraq, um, how the United States can go in there and um, under its direction, destroy all those cities. I mean, the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy leveled nearly all those cities. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Sunnis were killed. Uh, we'll never know. That is not really so much the United States doing it. You know, that is, the, you know, it gets put on it. The Iraqis were the ones who did this. I mean, we were dropping a heck of a lot of bombs, but, you know, it, it's not quite the same, I think, in terms of, of the way the media covers it, the way that, uh, and the way the American public understands it when you use these proxy forces. So, it, you know, it, yeah, again, it's, I don't even think it's effective other than like the point you made, Stephen, that it's effective to keep the wars hidden so that they can continue. Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, resonates with how I uh, how I think about this. Just to put a couple of numbers on, and these are official numbers um, from Afghanistan. Um, Heavily front-loaded, U.S. service members killed is now 2,448, most recent number. Number of contractors, 3,846. So thank you you for that. I've done a bunch of interviews this week, Stephen. You are the first person to bring that up. I mean, you're honestly to God, honest to God, man, you are probably at this point the 15th interview I've done this week, and you are the first person to bring it up. And the importance of what Stephen is saying with the contractors, because in every war prior to this one, those contractors would have been wearing a uniform. They're doing the job that soldiers or Marines or airmen or sailors or whatever would have done in previous wars. And so to leave them out of the casualty count is a direct way of hiding the cost of the war. I think a lot of what we're seeing now is a lot of what falls into the category of sunk cost fallacy. Um, and yeah. I know I'm seeing this from, from the yeah. establishment, but also from a lot of my veteran friends who have sort of a visceral reaction to the withdrawal, um, or at least the way that it's going, because, okay, what were we ever fighting for in the, in the first place? And in and, and the fallacy of the argument, I think Mike Gravel, the, the late senator, you know, the, uh, the late Mike Gravel, senator from Alaska, who read the Pentagon Papers into the, you know, um, my God, I wish we had someone like Mike Gravel in Congress right now, you know, but Mike Gravel, who read the classified Pentagon Papers into uh, the congressional record, um, 
you know, and then who ran for president in 2008 and, in 2008 and um, uh, again in 2016, it was 2016 or 2020, whichever he ran again. But, um, you know, you know, in the 2008 presidential debates, he got asked that, what about the, what about the sacrifices of all the troops? How can we pull out of Iraq now with the sacrifices? And, and Gravel very clearly said, he said, the, the only thing worse than soldiers dying in vain are more soldiers dying in vain, right? I mean, like, the honestly, the only thing worse than soldiers dying, guys die, guys and gals dying for a lie are more soldiers and more guys and gals dying for a lie. So yes, that, that sunk cost fallacy argument uh, or the sunk cost argument is a fallacy, you know, and it, it's an emotional argument. Um, it resonates with a lot of people, uh, particularly among veterans. There are people who want to think what they did over there was worth it. Uh, it meant something. They want to see that their friends who were killed or their, you know, um, uh, you know, their, their, their friends who are, who are now living with disabilities, their families are devastated on and on. Um, yeah, uh, they want they want it to mean something, and the whole point of it was it didn't mean anything other than you know the maintenance you know and expansion of, of the American empire. That's it. I mean, Afghanistan is really truly terrible because at least with Iraq you could say okay there is a serious economic benefit to invading Iraq. I mean, lots of things go into the decision-making of, of how and why the American empire does things. I mean, there are reasons for it there, but, but with Afghanistan, it's really hard to come across a reason for the war in Afghanistan that was not centered around one domestic political politics, George Bush showing that he could get revenge, you know, bringing justice to these terrorists, right? By terrorists, he meant the whole, an entire nation of people. Um, but the other thing too, and, and I think it's very important to, uh, you know, Timothy McVeigh had uh, killed, you know, up until 9-11, Timothy McVeigh's bombing of the Oklahoma, the Murrow building in Oklahoma City was the worst act of terrorism on American soil. And the United States certainly did not pursue war against the people that you could say Timothy McVeigh represented, all the various militia groups in this country say, right? But uh, I think, you know, for various reasons of, 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 who we are as a people here. It's a lot of, it's, it, it, it's, it's correct to punish an entire nation of people, particularly when they're Brown and they're Muslim. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so, so the reason for being there, you know, really it comes down to that domestic political reason for George Bush. And then also too, for the maintenance of the empire, for the expansion of the empire, you cannot have a threat like this. You cannot have an uprising, so to speak. You know, it's also another chance to, to gain another piece of the empire. But in terms of the benefits, like the economic benefits, those are all ancillary. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the amount of money that was made off this war by corporations, yes, absolutely. But it wasn't as if uh, it wasn't the same um, as Iraq, where you could say by invading Iraq, American corporations could capture the oil reserves. By invading Iraq, American corporations, and when I say American, I include the entire, I mean, Europe, I mean, I talk about being self-centered and everything, but, you know, American, European, Western corporations could, uh, you know, uh, people should go and be interested in, the, in, in who are interested in this. Uh, Paul Bremer, who was in charge of the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority for Iraq, so the first uh, uh, person put in charge, technically a second, but the first person in charge of Iraq for the United States, uh, Bremer issues 100 orders. And most of those orders are geared towards the economy, or a lot of those orders are, including the fact that much of Iraq's major industries were state-owned organizations. And so you can understand with Iraq going in 
dismantling those state-owned organizations and then giving them to Western corporations, how you can see how that is looting, how that is extraction. While with Afghanistan, uh, it's kind of hard to find a reason other than these domestic political concerns of the president, um, as well then um, the geopolitical concerns of, of, of you know, the American empire. Yeah, I mean, to put that into perspective, the prosecution of the uh, Afghanistan war, just for the official numbers, is right at about a trillion dollars over, over uh, 20 mm-hmm. years. The entire Afghan gross national product over that same period of time is about $300 billion. Yeah. So it's yeah. a third, the entire product of the whole country. If we'd stolen it all, we'd still be $600 billion in the hole. That, that's exactly right. It is. I mean, and that's not to de- uh, discount the economic incentive of the wars and how it's all, and it is all tied together. It's because, you know, there are people who are pursuing these wars for their own economic game, whether individually or institutionally. Uh, there are government institutions that are pursuing these wars for their own gain, right? These wars mean larger budgets, more staff, more power basically for these government organizations. So, I mean, the same type of of greed that influences corporations also influences government institutions. Um, You know, but you can't, the economic argument does not explain Azalmay Khalilzad. It does not explain a John Bolton. It does not explain a Paul Wolfowitz, right? It does not explain a Susan Rice. It does not explain a Samantha Powers. These people um, certainly are wealthy. They've made a lot of money. But again, that is because they have, it, when they have not been in power, they are rewarded with jobs that pay very well. But as soon as the opportunity comes, they jump back into a government job that pays $150,000 a year, which is a lot of money to a lot of people. But when you're living in the Washington, D.C. area, that's not a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, it, that's just the reality of that. You know, so there, you have to look at this, that, that you'll never find a singular reason for this. There are multiple reasons who, where, uh, that they intersect, the, 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 um, the benefit uh, intersects for many different people. Uh, but it is, I think, because uh, if you come to that understanding, if you're a veteran who was over there, and also too, I just want to say, because just because I've done this long enough to know, just because Stephen and I right now are talking principally about Americans does not mean we don't care about the Afghans. And I, both of us, I know, would say that the Afghans are the first priority. But however, this conversation is focused on the Americans. Um, I, I, I've done this enough that I have to make caveats like that because I hear it from people afterwards all the time. And it's right for them to do that, right for them to make sure the Afghans are the, the primary concern. Um, but, you know, imagine if you're an American veteran and you don't know what the reason is. Is it better to not know the reason than to actually understand that damn, this war was only about, you know, George Bush's uh, 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 public approval rating. This was only about the Democrats showing that a, a black Democrat could be a better war fighter than George Bush was. You know, this is this is about, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, the way that uh, under the Trump administration, these people really came to prominence, men like John Kelly, these generals, John Kelly, H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis, and they really subscribe, while I would say like a, a Paul Wolfowitz, Zalmay Khalilzad, their philosophies on this were really a neuro, neoliberal experiment. We are going to make this part of the world like this. It's an expansion of the empire and that benefits the empire because you are building up. I mean, you're raising everything up so that benefits the whole while men like Kelly and Mattis McMaster come from the school of the empire, I believe that says these are the borderlands. 
These are the areas that must be subjugated and controlled. This is the frontier lands. Uh, the expression that is used is we have to mow the grass. That is all, there's always going to be uprisings. There's always going to be rebellions against our authority. And we have to keep the grass cut, meaning coming in all the time and just subduing that, uh, 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 subduing that, um, you know, that, that uh, uh, rebellion against uh, U.S. empire authority. 20 years, four administrations into this particular war and into the broader um, reorientation of the American empire and um, uh, military industrial complex towards the so-called war on terror. There are some lessons that we as the American people could learn from this experience, even if the establishment is uh, reluctant to learn them. Do you have any thoughts sort of here at the end to, uh, to, to share about that? You know, one thing is this what I've been saying to people about the current situation in Kabul, um, you know, and then, of course, what will happen with the Taliban. You know, I'm a big uh, uh, Yogi Berra fan, right? Uh, the, the, the New York Yankees catcher and all his quips and witticisms. And, um, and, 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 and Yogi said about, uh, he said one time, predictions are hard, especially when they're about the future. You know, I mean, so I think to keep that in mind, we don't know what's going to happen. We can have an idea. We can draw conclusions. We can see that, you know, left up its own devices, the American government is going to do things the way it did before. You know, I mean, but, you know, and so what I would say, too, as well as the reporting that's coming out of Afghanistan right now, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. I mean, you can look at I watch uh, Al Jazeera English quite a bit and their correspondent in uh, Kabul right now is a woman named Charlotte Bellis, who does incredible work. Um, and um, Clarissa Roard from CNN, who's being celebrated all across Twitter for how brave she is and everything, she is dressing in Afghanistan in um, very strict Islamic dress, all black. Uh, I believe it's called Chadar. The only thing showing is her face. I mean, she's got like a, a, a basically a mask around the side of her head and everything. Um, very similar to probably how she dressed when she used to be in Aleppo with Al Qaeda in Aleppo. Um, Meanwhile, Charlotte Bellis is wearing the same clothes that she has been wearing all the time when she's in these places. The only difference is because now that the Taliban are in power, she has placed a, a hijab over her head or scarf over her head with half her hair showing. I mean, and they're, they are both blonde haired, blue eyed women. So clearly, you know, these are foreigners, Westerners, you know, and everything. And it just goes to the point being about this is that I have no doubt that Clisser Ward and CNN is doing that for the theater of the, the programming, right? The, 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 the narrative of it, the theater, the Taliban have taken over. So Clisser Ward needs to dress appropriately to uh, uh, portray this takeover. Point I would make is like, be very suspect of the media. The media has been complicit. Thanks again, Matt, for coming on the show. Um, I'm sure in the future we'll be talking again. Yeah, my pleasure, Stephen. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, p please, uh, please be well and stay healthy. Thank you. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP, 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war. And no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to veteransforpeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening.